Hey everybody, it's Tanya Adlita back again with Recovering Church Girls and our Enlightened Guys. And of course, I have one of our guys with us, Nathan Hulritz. Uh, if you've followed any of the work that I've done up to this point, Nathan's going to be a familiar face because we get to spend a lot of time together in the Single Parent Summit as well. So Nathan, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because every time we talk, we touch on some of these things and experiences. So I'm really excited to have you here with us so we can dive deep into those. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure we'll go deep, but it, this is fun because it, it this is the culmination really of probably all of our conversations in the yes. last year or two. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely excited to, to dig in. Yeah, absolutely. So starting off, um, I think one of the first things that kind of cued me into this idea of like, ooh, there's more to that story. When you first gave me this kind of overview of your own experience coming into the world and transitioning into the role of being a single dad, you referenced your childhood. So take us to that moment. What, you know, what was your childhood like? What did you experience in that? Well, I grew up in Japan. And, and the ultra simple version of the story is that my parents are missionaries in Japan. And so I spent about 10 years of my life there. We moved there when I was about two years old. And uh, we lived for the first couple of years just outside of Tokyo and in a town or a city called Karuizawa. And my parents studied the language. And then we moved from there down south to the southernmost main island of Japan called Kyushu in an area called Kagoshima. Spent about eight years of my life there. So I, I grew up in Japanese culture, learned to speak the language, and of course, loved the Japanese food. <laughs> and, um, but that was, my, that was my life, was being a missionary's kid. Uh, and, a, and a pastor's kid, for that matter, too, because my, my dad was starting churches, and my mom was helping him in that effort. And uh, so that's the ultra-simple version of, of my <laughs> life. We ended up moving back to uh, or my, my childhood life, I should, should specify. We moved back to the States when I was um, close to 14 years old. And my parents have continued in ministry and teaching since. Uh, but that, my, my childhood memories are largely rooted in that experience as a missionary's kid. And when you think about your time in Japan, are you thinking more about the culture and the experience of growing up in what was not familiar to you, you know, in comparison as far as the States, but was it the Japanese culture or was it the Christian culture of church planting and being a missionary? Was there one that was stronger than the other or do you have them really melded in your experience? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It, it was all kind of built into to one overall experience. And actually, you talked about the culture not being familiar. It was what was familiar to yeah, me. Yeah, really, that's all you knew at that point, right? Exactly. Changed, like, sure. Exactly. And my first memories really are in the apartment that we lived in, in Karuizawa, outside of Tokyo, in Japan there. So that's what I knew. Um, and, and of course, Christianity was just a part of my childhood as well, just by default. Um, so both of these things kind of melded together and, and still kind of meld together in a way in, in my memories as a child. So when you came back to the States, I'm thinking kind of this re-entry. I remember when I was a teenager, I did short-term missions as, uh, you know, in the youth groups and things like that. And I remember them talking about uh, the the cultural, cultural process and kind of like that debrief mm. that you've got to come back into <laughs> yeah. the States and, and really acclimate yourself again to what it's like to live in the United States. 
because we are so incredibly privileged, and I think sometimes it's so easy for us to forget that, and yet you had the exact opposite experience, where you've been immersed in Japanese culture, and now you're coming back as a citizen, but, you know, really your first time being fully immersed in the United States culture at the age of 14. What was that like for you? Well, to be clear, Japanese culture is definitely first world culture, but it is vastly different from American culture. And so when I came back to the States, especially around the time that I was 14, um, I was just an absolute uh, dork is the best word that I can come up with. Like, I, I mean, uh, I think back to my existence in Japan, it was, I, in fact, I didn't even learn how to tie, sh tie my own shoes until I was in sixth grade because in Japan, we wore Velcro because you take your shoes off when you go into the house. It's a lot easier just to buy Velcro shoes and take those off very quickly. Uh, and I have this kind of mental image of myself as a kid in Japan with like ultra short shorts, the tall socks with the colored stripes and Velcro <laughs> shoes. And in fact, I literally have probably multiple pictures of me. I was just going to say, um, we might need to see those pictures. Just in so that very know. state. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when I came back to, to America, um, I had very little reference to pop culture, you know, any conversations about TV um, or music, these pop culture references that most kids my age likely knew in one form or another, I was clueless. And in fact, still to this day, I'll, I'll use that, I'll play that card, which is, I grew up in Japan, so I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's um, perfect. So it, it took some adjusting, um, just even learning how to speak, you know, what words do you use in this particular situation? For example, um, back at the time, this is the 90s, but at the time, I would say, oh, man, that's sweet. Basically, meaning that's really cool. But at that point, I, I think we had already passed the, the use of the word sweet. <laughs> and so I was I was laughed at for that. You know, the, these kinds of nuanced um, uh, pop culture um, vocabulary in this case, but certainly, again, pop culture references. This was stuff that I just wasn't highly aware of. And so it was an adjustment as I was going to a, a I came back to the States. We went to a private school at the time. It was small, which was probably a lot better than, than coming back and going into public school. I would have just been blown away. I wouldn't have known what to do with myself. But it was certainly an adjustment. And, and having been in so many different scenarios, both in Japan and the States, traveling a lot, going to situations or to meeting people, going to, to places that I wasn't familiar with, um, I, I learned how to adjust pretty quickly. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that that was helpful uh, as I made that adjustment back into American life. I would certainly think so. And I, if it makes you feel any better, I was here in the States for the vast majority of my childhood, and I still did not have all of the pop cultural references because I was not allowed to listen to secular music right. or you know go to certain movies or any of that type of thing. I remember, let's see, I must have been probably about 12, 13, somewhere in that range. And, you know, listening to secular music was completely forbidden unless yeah. it was the golden oldies because that was what my dad <laughs> wanted to listen to. So that was right. okay. But what's so funny yeah. to me is that now if you go back and look at the lyrics of the songs from the 50s and 60s, they were far more explicit than anything I would have been listening to in the late 80s. Having said that, I know this because I would fall asleep listening to the radio on like 0.1 volume. And <laughs> yeah. then my mom, who at, at a certain point in time in, in my childhood, 
she had a job that was leaving very early in the morning. And so I was always so afraid that I wouldn't wake up before her, turn the radio off, get back in bed. Because I was literally laying on the floor with the radio with my ear like right to the speaker. And I would write down the top five for that week or whatever just so I would be able to have it in conversation. Like, you know, oh, I see okay. you're a dork and I raise you a nerd. You yeah. Know, just, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to actually ask you, so is that is that largely what drew or drove you to to listen to the music with such intensity like you wanted to be able to to feel relevant to the people around you I think that was a big part of it because I felt the disconnect uh, and I was in a public school environment up to eighth grade and then I was okay. homeschooled a freshman through junior and then a private wow. Christian school for my senior year so I hit wow. all three and uh, yeah I've got stories to tell <laughs> oh I can imagine but was there also this kind of I mean, anytime you're told not to do something, you kind of want to do that thing, right? So was there oh, a little yeah. bit of that there too? Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. The funny thing was, I think that with so many of us that grow up in this culture, mm. there becomes this um, this very desirable thing to be applauded for our efforts. And I think that I can trace back you know, my workaholic bit, my people pleasing, the perfectionism, I can tra trace all of that back to growing up in this particular environment and in the church. And that became the outward expression, which of course is so ironic for those of us that still remember our Bible verses, because that's kind of the exact opposite of what our faith is supposed to be. And yet at the same time, there was this validation for, you know, being the good kid and, and being the goody two shoes or being the poster child or, you know, any of those types of thing. So there was definitely that tension and that dichotomy of, I want the accolades of being the good girl. And yeah. at the same time, I want to know why I can't do X, Y, and Z, or, you mm. know, whatever the case might be. So like typical, you know, typical teenager stuff, but Absolutely. with another layer of how I'm viewing the world because of this framework. And that's exactly what I want to ask you about growing up as a missionary kid and then coming back into the States. And we're talking about this idea of, you know, our experiences growing up in the church and then how that's impacted, not only how we view the world, but also how we view ourselves. What has your spiritual journey been like, you know, with this kind of childhood and upbringing and then coming back into, you know, all of a sudden let's throw you into the United States culture. Hmm. Wow. I mean, where to start, right? Like there's right. so many different <laughs> kind of touch points in this, in this so-called journey, but uh, very simply, maybe I'll start at the end and then kind of work backwards. Uh, at this stage in my life, I, I'm not part of church. Uh, I don't really have a, a spiritual life of sorts. Um, if, if somebody were to ask me to, to, to categorize myself or label myself, I would, I would say that I'm agnostic. Um, and, and we can even dive into that, that, the definition and, and what that represents for me personally later on, if you'd like. But um, that being said, the, I guess the, the biggest transition for me um, happened in my early 20s. And it was at a point where I had gotten so fed up with the, the, the feeling of guilt in my life, uh, the sense that I needed to constantly pray and ask for forgiveness for something that I thought about or did do or I didn't do. Um, and it was just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I just, yes. I no longer wanted to have to live or exist in that, that feeling. And, and so I, at that point it was enough is enough. And, um, and, and I stepped away and that was kind of my, I mean, you, you, there was, there's, it's been a, it was probably a decade long process or even more of 
kind of slowly pulling away and then peeling away and then understanding the psychology behind both this, this whole religious existence that I had experienced as a child and as a young adult. Um, and then making some, coming to some understanding about, about life, at least for myself and making some decisions about now, what are my values outside of this existence Mm -hmm. in a spiritual or religious world? And how does that translate to my life now? How am I going to live now? Um, within my own belief system, uh, or not even belief system, just my own value system. Sure. sure. So I, I, there's probably, maybe you have some questions with regards to all of that. Oh, I have it, a thousand questions because that's just the way I think. <laughs> it's loaded. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you ask those because that could go so many different, different directions here. Well, let's start with the idea. Uh, you kind of hinted at this. What, how do you define agnostic and what does that mean for mm. you personally? Well, in my mind, one of the words that comes comes to mind when I think about agnostic is honesty, uh, because what what we're doing w- within the, the notion of agnosticism is we're we're saying there may be a god. We we don't know. We can't prove it. Um, there is certainly a a, a great possibility uh, that there is a god or something comparable to a god, something that is bigger, greater than us, that potentially created us. Uh, that came to design the world, the universe as we know it, uh, that may be out there, but we can't prove it. And as a result, I'm not going to live my life based on that, that notion, and then also create a belief system around that notion. Um, so I'm not so egotistical as to suggest that, or to, to, to be dogmatic and say there is not a God. I certainly can't prove that, but I also can't prove that there is one. So I, I live in the in-between and, you know, so, some might say, well, you should commit one way or another. Well, no, I, I think there is honest conversation back to that word. There is honest acknowledgement of the fact that we just don't know everything. Mm. And so that's where I sit when it comes to the idea of God. And that's how I define agnosticism. And I'm also hearing a humility in in your voice and in your passion as you talk about this as well. The idea that, you know, this isn't up to me to know the answers in all of this. I can only speak for myself. And, and there's, there's a humility that I hear in that, which I really respect, which reminds me of you mentioned the idea of your values. So tell us a little bit about the values that you've chosen to hold on to. And I'm curious if you see a connection at all between your value system and the way in which you were raised. Where did those values come from, I guess, is the question I would ask. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back, actually, before I explain the value system to, to what you were talking about with regards to humility. And you may, you may hear in my voice uh, that, that my passion kind of overrides that sense of humility at times because I've, just, I've been affected on a, on a, in a negative level by my religious experience and, and my childhood. And, and to be clear and, and to be, um, uh, well, just to be very clear about my childhood, I have to say that my, my parents to this day still love me, took wonderful care of me. And, and I don't want in any way kind of create this picture that I had a terrible childhood, but the, the, the religious side of that or the religious element of my childhood uh, translated to a lot of, and, and I hesitate to use the word suffering because it sounds dramatic, but a lot of suffering in my life, certainly psychologically, and that translated to the way that I've, that I lived or, or didn't live. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very passionate when I speak about these things because I've experienced pain and I want to help if, if, if I can somehow help others at least take a step back and consider 
their belief system, not necessarily a religious belief system, but their belief system, how they look at the world uh, for the sake of their mental, emotional health. I want to be able to do that, especially those that come from a background like you or and I, you or I do. But right. when we so let me ask you this: rather than get into the values, because I do want to know about that, but would you be open to going a little bit deeper in this idea of the the negative aspect? Because I think there are so many of us that feel the ramifications of that. And for those who are still kind of unraveling what they experienced and peeling back the layers to find what they actually really do believe, I think the processing of identifying, yeah, this was not the way that this was supposed to be, or, uh, you know, I was hurt in this. Sometimes even just getting those words to come across our lips can be an incredibly powerful thing and we have all the head trash that prevents us from calling it what it was. Mm, yeah. Okay. So I, I will go there, but I just want, I think this is really important. I want to mention, you talked about the idea of humility. The cool thing about agnosticism is that, uh, and, and again, I, I'm not a subscriber. I'm, I'm not this kind of hardcore, I am an agnostic and everybody who's an agnostic, you know, join around me and let's, let's fight for it kind of. <laughs> Uh, that, that's not the way that I, that I think. Um, in fact, labels, I think, can be detrimental to intelligent, constructive conversation at times. But the cool thing about agnosticism is that, that there is a humility innate to it, which says, I don't know everything. And if you or I or anyone else is willing to, to maintain some sort of humility in, in, in that context, acknowledge the fact that we don't know everything. Now we're all in the same playing field. Mm -hmm. Now it's not, I'm up here and I know more than you, or I'm over here and I, I've, I've had this experience and so I can do this better than you. We're all in the same playing field because we all acknowledge the fact that we don't know. Right. And now the, now the conversation becomes really interesting because we're all on the same team, just trying to kind of figure this thing out together and we have the opportunity to learn from each other. And I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing this podcast for that very reason. A lot of conversation amongst all fellow human beings who are just trying to figure out life. And part of life is this whole God idea. What does that mean to us? And um, when, when, we, when we acknowledge that we, can't, that we don't know, there is no 100% proof of this thing or that thing when it comes to the idea of God, uh, it puts us all in the same playing field. And now the conversation becomes much, much more interesting. So I, th I think that's a really important point to make. Uh, it, in fact, it's a conversation that, that I've been having um, via email with my dad, the difference between faith and dogma. And, and mm. when, when you get dogmatic about anything, unless you have scientific proof, and when I say scientific proof, it basically that, that I can prove objectively, tangibly that this thing is true, whatever that thing might be. Um, if we don't have that, and yet you're going to be dogmatic about it, well, the conversation just kind of ends mm -hmm. right there. There's right. no room for the discussion of the possibilities uh, or the, the notion that maybe belief, our, our choice to believe something is playing into this. It's just, it's absolutism and the conversation just kind of falls apart from there. So uh, having an open mind, acknowledging we don't know everything just makes the conversation more interesting. But to, to your question about um, my background and how that, I guess, affected my, my life negatively, probably the, the biggest negative from all of that was... Um, well, two things. One, one was guilt and uh, guilt that came from this idea that I was never good enough. Mm. And, you know, at this stage of my life, outside of what comes down to just respect, um, I actually have written down um, in, in a note. I have a note. I, I use a system called Evernote and, and I like to take lots of notes and save a lot of information. I've literally, I think, close to 10,000 notes in, in Evernote now. 
But one of the, one of the notes that I have in Evernote is a note called who, who I am. And I've, I've jotted down some various notes over time about the, the big ideas that um, either represent who I am or who I at least want to be, the person that I want to be. And my ethical code, if you will, um, can be described as this. And very simply is to show respect. Mm. And, then, and then I explain, do nothing that harms another person mentally or physically or infringes on another person's ability to make choices for themselves unless their choices could cause another person harm or infringe on another person's ability to make choices for themselves. So that's kind of my ethical code. Outside of that idea, um, I, was, I was told, if you will, through the Bible or biblical teaching that this thing was wrong, that this thing's wrong, this is not right, and this isn't good enough, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And the combination of those biblical teachings with, uh, coupled with the way that I was parented led me to a place where literally, I mean, within the span of you know, 60 seconds, I would pray multiple times for forgiveness for this thing or that thing because mm-hmm. I was feeling extremely guilty. Right. Um, so the guilt that comes from um, kind of an absolute black and white approach to life combined with constantly failing that approach and then um, a, a parenting style which only kind of exact or, or um, amplified that absolutism that black and white you do this or it's mm-hmm. not enough um, that that led to a place where I was I, I, I dealt with an extreme amount of guilt unfortunately I'm, I'm far enough removed from that at this point that it's not as much an issue anymore uh, but that would probably be the, the biggest negative takeaway. The other thing, I, and I've already touched on this, was the notion of life being black and white, of it mm-hmm. being absolute, and of there only being kind of one right way to do things. And um, I, that translated, and, and still does, I have to be careful about it, trans, that translated to the way that I um, certainly treated myself, but then also treated my significant other, mm-hmm. um, to my kids, uh, even to the way that I, that I engage with people still from time to time. Again, I have to be in, in self-awareness. It's something that I have to make sure that I avoid. It's kind of absolute, absolute black and white mentality or approach to living in conversation and doing business and anything else. Just remembering that things aren't actually as black and white as they were made to seem mm-hmm. um, in that religious environment. And, you know, it's a funny thing that people do. And I guess this speaks largely to my perspective on the, the notion of religion, but there is, there is a certain sense of comfort and stability that comes from being able to have answers, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's hard not to see religion as an effort to create answers when we don't have them. Uh, I, I got into a conversation, I won't name names because um, Ed, you and I were chatting about this before we started recording. I think maintaining a certain level of respect in these conversations is really important. But um, I was having a conversation recently with somebody around this topic of religion. And, and uh, there was, when I suggested the idea that we may not have all the answers, that we can't prove everything in the Bible, their response was extremely telling, and they are extremely religious. Their response was extremely telling. They said, well, if we, if we can't answer all the questions, then we're in trouble. Hmm. And I'm not even sure they realize the significance of that statement. <laughs> what they actually but, said. Right. But it's, it's a sad thing that we try to create answers kind of out of nothing mm-hmm. in order to feel secure, in order to feel safe, in order to feel stable. And that's largely what religion does. But when in, in, in an attempt to do that, and in order to 
have these answers, to create these answers, uh, what you end up with is a culture that becomes very absolutist and not only absolutist, but they can't really actually answer for these, these ideas that they've created. Mm-hmm. Um, they just simply say, these are the answers. And the, again, the conversation kind of ends there. It's dogma um, versus an open-minded conversation that, that is driven by constructive thought and right. intelligence. So I, I went on for a long time there and I'm sorry, but. <laughs> no, oh my uh, gosh, please. No, no apologies. Um, and I think a really interesting piece that kind of goes in tandem with this is the culture of us versus them. That if you Mm, believe mm -hmm. what we believe, then you are one of us. And if you don't, or if you have questions, if you feel that that we are not providing you all of the answers because you're you're asking why or you're asking for that second layer, then you must be one of them. And it becomes this divide that I think further perpetuates the the narrative, which is so interesting to me because it's almost like this idea of, you know. There was a part of me going through, excuse me, going through the unraveling for myself. I wanted there to be a bad guy. I wanted to have someone or something to blame for feeling manipulated and controlled. And, you know, I can look back and I can very clearly see different points along my life where I was indeed directed out of fear or in an effort to control my behavior or an outcome or whatever. And at the same time, I also see so much love and kindness and mercy and wanting the best for me. And I had a really hard time reconciling those two Mm. for a little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wonder for you if just this idea of being able to work through the guilt, I love how quickly that seemed to have happened. And yet what I'm hearing is that it was actually, it was a long process, but at some point in time, there was a decision that says, I'm just done with the guilt. Talk to us a little bit about that. And how did, how did that transition or even transformation, if you will, take place for you? And did any part of the culture of the us versus them play into that? Like, you know, were you still in community? I'm using air quotes here because, <laughs> of course, we have like Christianese words that we still say. You know, yeah. were you st- like, how did that, how did the community or lack thereof impact you in your transition on the guilt? Hmm. Well, again, the, the initial, I, I guess, the initial effort to step away from from Christianity was driven by by this idea of guilt, and it was it was kind of immediate, um, in the sense that I said, "Enough is enough." I'm I'm no longer going to try to maintain uh, what I had been explained was that I I can't have a relationship with God unless I have a clear conscience, aka have made sure that all of my sins have been forgiven. Right. Um, so you had salvation, and there was this kind of blanket salvation from our sins. But then in an effort to, to maintain an ongoing relationship with God, I had to ask for forgiveness for whatever the thing was that I, that I had done. Now, largely, again, because of the way that I was brought up, I kind of developed this OCD approach to Christianity. So in addition to what I think are, are uh, misnomers, to put it kindly, when it came to, to this religious belief system that I've been brought up on, um, I, I also made that even worse by becoming obsessive, and and that was part of what amplified that that guilty process. But I, I would go to the extent of creating in my mind um, something that I thought God had told me to do. So let, let's just for an example, an, an ambulance is driving by. This idea pops into my head that I'm supposed to pray for the person in that ambulance, and then I don't. 
and now I've disobeyed God. And, and of course, the irony here is that I created this idea in my head and said that that was God telling me to do something, which also begs a whole different conversation about the idea of God's will and, and God speaking to us. But uh, but I created this thing in my head and I didn't do it. So now I had sinned against God. So now I need to ask for forgiveness for that sin. And it sounds crazy and it was, but this was kind of the obsessive nature of or the obsessive existence mm -hmm. that I was living and why it became so exhausting and why literally, I mean, in the span of 30 seconds or 60 seconds or you know, five minutes, I might pray three, four, five times and ask for forgiveness. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't live. And so it was, I, I had to get out of that and I did, and I just stopped worrying about it. So but when you say you stopped worrying about it, because I'm like, I can identify with everything that you're saying. And you yeah. know, I'm just kind of like smiling and nodding here. <laughs> and the idea yeah. of like, well, yeah, because of course, as soon as you see an ambulance come through, that's what you do. So none of that was crazy to me because I can identify a hundred percent. But then the like, you're just like, I just stopped worrying how did you stop worrying? Because I like, was it literally just a conscious thought? And every time the worry would come back up, you just shut it down? Because I feel like that's the piece that when you are starting to, you know, kind of really sift through all of these things, that guilt was such a huge element of so much of the way that we were raised. And I think a lot of times we never saw it coming until we start to peel back all the layers. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm a huge fan of Tony Robbins, and I think we've talked about him before in, in previous conversations, but I, I, I love Tony Robbins because he helps kind of distill psychology into understandable chunks, and it's, it's really enabled me to help kind of make sense of, of life moving outside of Christianity. So uh, anyway, to, to that point, Tony talks about how human beings tend to avoid pain and gain pleasure or gain happiness. But our, our propensity is, is toward avoiding pain before trying to gain pleasure. So in this case, very simply, I look at it as, as I am experiencing so much pain that it was no longer worth the potential pleasure or happiness or joy, again, to borrow a Christian term, uh, that, that I may have experienced being a Christian or trying to live the Christian life. The pain was way, way, way greater than the potential happiness. Hmm. And that at, at that point, it was easy for me to just shut it down. And, and again, not to mention the fact that this, this obsessive existence, um, trying to live this Christian life and, and make sure that I had a clear conscience was just exhausting. So the, the idea that I stopped doing that, it was a relief. It was a massive relief. And I would imagine a bit of self-preservation in that because 100%. it is so all-encompassing. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I, I, I see where you're going with that. I mean, it, it's, it's easy when you develop habits, uh, or actually I should say it's difficult when you develop habits, especially over a long span of time to move away from those habits. But at this point, there was enough pain. Mm. You know, you, you hear about these experiences in people's life where, you know, maybe a loved one dies and it, and it enacts a, a massive change in their life, or they're in an accident and, or, you know, something happens to their health. A, a massive pain point occurs and it's, it's significant enough to, to enact change. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you, I'm so curious about the way that you use the word joy, uh, because I never really considered it being a Christian term. Mm. And there was something in just the, the way that you said that. I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit more. 
uh, and it might just be because I've never necessarily equated the two, but now that you've said it, I can look back and say like, okay, you know, thinking of Christmas carols, that was the first thing to come to mind, <laughs> of, you know, joy to the world. Joy to the uh, world, yeah. But, but with this idea, do you see joy in other aspects of your life or do you feel like that is something that is specifically like Christianese? Well, in my childhood, joy was defined as a, a kind of a long-standing happiness, a deeper happiness. Happiness, the notion of happiness was temporary. Uh, the notion of joy was something that God gave you as a result of a relationship with him and living for him that um, had a, a, there was a deeper experience and it was, uh, I guess, more sustainable than temporary happiness. So that's why I make that differentiation. Um, and and now I would like that was something that needed to be external, like you in and of yourself from from that experience mm. could not create or experience joy without it being given to you is mm -hmm. what I'm hearing was kind of mm -hmm. the, the experience, the way that it was defined for you. Yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting because it, it speaks to to the, the concept of control. And of course, mm -hmm. we can we can see that concept of control in all different pieces of, of religion as, as we've known it. But um, yeah, that, that was, unless you had a relationship with God, you couldn't have joy. And so happiness was temporary. Now I would just speak to probably the, the, the way that I would maybe differentiate happiness. Um, I mean, it, it, I think pretty much everybody understands what happiness is, but I, I would maybe use the word peace uh, in addition to that too, uh, because it's one, it is one thing to be happy temporarily. I'm, I'm happy. I just had really you know, a good dinner, or I'm happy I just got this really cool pair of shoes, whatever it might be. But I'm at peace uh, because I am comfortable in myself, and um, and I'm ultimately not worried about what's coming tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take it as, a, as it comes. So it, the notion of peace versus joy, I, I just don't tend to go to joy because of the, the religious connection that I have psychologically. funny because I don't go to peace for that reason, because I okay. think of, um, you know, like you remember the little meme that says, no Jesus, no peace, the two different versions of no, yeah, the N -O -W yeah. versus N-O. Uh -huh. uh, and I, so I think that's my default for peace is this idea that is only attainable through some sort of religious or spiritual exercise mm. or practice or, you know, what have you. It, and I think now, you know, again, having unpacked a lot of this and, and gone on my own spiritual journey of self-discovery and, and awareness and all the rest of it, I think I could see that differently now. But my first inclination when we think of like the the desirable emotions and the religious underpinnings that, that go along with them, mm -hmm. I would be more quick to, to reject the word peace. Um, Interesting. In that whole scenario. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, I think about peace. I've, I've experimented with... Uh, meditation and and also coming to understand a little bit better the not the significance but the lack of significance really of that so-called voice inside our head there's a book by a guy named michael singer um, called the untethered, the untethered soul, soul. <laughs> absolutely and yeah i think we've talked about that before and and um it's it's a really powerful book because he not only helps the average individual who maybe have kind of misconceptions about what meditation actually is understand from a very practical, bright, pra pragmatic sense, what meditation is and how you can actually use it in your life. But in order to understand the significance of meditation, it really does help to understand what that 
that voice inside our head is that's constant, constantly chattering. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that matter, constantly kind of annoying us. It's usually berating us, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it, and I guess you could say too, that it's very largely, very much tied to that, that guilt complex mm-hmm. that I suffered from for so long. So um, that's a really powerful book and I can't recommend that enough to, to any and everyone listening in because it's, it's, really, really helpful to help minimize the significance or give less significance to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, he, he talks about how you're not to, that voice isn't to you. Mm-hmm. The fact, the very fact that you have the ability to kind of objectively think about or discuss that so-called voice inside your head is an obvious indication that that voice is not you. you. Yeah. So then what do you do with that? And he, and he impacts that and explains, and it's a, it's a just an absolutely beautiful book. Uh, but I've experienced this idea of peace, which is, for me anyway, which is um, if I'm sitting down to meditate and I'm able to allow, he talks about the idea of, of seeing a thought in and out. So when, it, when I sit down to meditate, I'm, I'm going to consciously, with my eyes closed, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, or I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm just sitting there existing, and these thoughts come across my head, instead of trying to fight them out, like, again, you know, the, the kind of stereotype in American culture, meditation is you're supposed to clear your mind. And so people sit down, they try to clear their mind, they can't do that. Um, instead of trying to do that, which is kind of futile, you see the thought, you acknowledge the thought, nothing wrong with the thought, but then you also see it out almost like you're seeing it out the door and you repeat this process over and over and over and over again. And what it enables you to do is to be there in the present and to sit in the moment and be okay with what is. And, and uh, there is a sense of calm and peace um, that I've experienced in that experience, in that process, which I'm then able to translate to my daily life, not just when I'm sitting there with my eyes closed. That's been really, really powerful. And, and it's something that is, I, I'm still developing. But it's that when I think about peace, that's kind of the the idea, the picture that comes to my head. I love that idea. And I, I love, too, this concept that we're always developing, because I think that there was somewhere in the the um, upbringing, whether it was Christianity specifically or just religion in general. But this idea, again, going back to the us versus them, if you were one of us, then you've arrived and you've got your shit all figured out. Or yeah. at least you are redeemed. And so you're safe. You know, but but in reality, what I've come to experience is the idea that we are all evolving. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, from a I'm not trying to get into the creation debate, <laughs> but just the <laughs> idea of, you know, we we continue to change every experience that we have impacts who we become. And so we have the freedom to be able to direct that. And that's where you get into the idea of co-creation. And I had a really interesting conversation with someone recently who is uh, very religious and religion is a, a thing that saved her from a very difficult situation. So it, it was a helpful transition for her. I don't know that she's necessarily seen that she replaced one with the other. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping that that's something that, that she'll come to see, you know, in time. And at the same time, you know, that's her journey and it's not mine. And, and I hold full respect for her in that. The conversation we had, what got her so fired up was I mentioned something about co-creating my reality. And it offended her that I would be so, um, so bold to say that I am co-creating my reality 
And in that, she felt like I was trying to usurp the creative power that, that God is supposed to have in our lives and that really I'm just the human being who is along for the ride. Whatever happens, really, it has nothing to do with me. It's just all about whatever God deems is right for me to experience in that day. Uh, clearly, that's not how I believe at all. Uh, so it's just such an interesting conversation, again, to your idea of the, the dogmatic approach versus the you know, hey, let's have a conversation about this. Here's what I mean when I say this word, you know, and kind of unpack things along the way. So it's been an ongoing conversation and one that I'm really excited and honored to have and yet to hold space for that idea of even if you don't see things that way, I still do. Me holding on to this belief does not impinge upon you and your freedom in any way, shape, or form, and that shouldn't go the other way either. <laughs> so to be able to hold yeah. those boundaries. It's, but I've, I kind of struggle with this still. I have every bit of respect for a human's ability, we could even say right, to make choices for themselves, obviously. I mean, I spoke to, to my ethical code earlier. What I have a hard time respecting is not using critical thought. Mm -hmm. uh, different people may define intelligence in, in different ways, but the significance of critical thought, self-awareness, acknowledgement, you know, again, people may define truth in different ways, but acknowledgement of what has been proven or what can be proven, tangibly proven using the scientific method and what can't be. Um, if, if there isn't that type of critical thought, self-awareness, acknowledgement, honesty, like we talked about earlier in these conversations around the notion of God or something spiritual, I have a hard time maintaining respect for that lack of, shall we say, implementation of intelligence or <laughs> critical thought in that. That's a tough one for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't minimize the significance of my respect for that person as a human being. Sure. But I just have such a hard time with the idea of kind of uh, setting your brain aside for the sake mm -hmm. of what seems on a ultra, ultra simple level, like just wanting to feel better about yourself and about your life. And so you, you, subscribe to this construct of a belief system in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, I have a, a really, really difficult time with it. I did that very thing for years. Right. And ultimately I suffered from it. I realized that some people in one way or another are able to kind of set us either they don't have much of a negative experience or at least that they're aware of. Um, and they're able to ultimately benefit from that. You alluded to this a second ago with this person you were talking to, they, they benefit from it in one form or another. And and so they may continue with it or with some version of it without the, the real acknowledgement of what has just happened. They've chosen to believe in something in order to feel better. It goes back to that, that pain versus pleasure in order to feel or, or happiness versus sadness. In order to feel happiness, I am, I'm going to believe this thing, whether consciously or subconsciously, because it, it, it makes me feel better. I don't know what happens after I die. So what am I going to do? I'm going to create this. I'm, I'm going to believe in this construct of what happens after I die because it makes me feel better. It gives me hope. Um, it, it gives me hope that I might be able to see this person that I was so close to that passed away. And you can empathize because you can relate to those emotions that this person is having. But at the same time, and, and I, can, I can empathize, I can relate, but at the same time, it's hard to it's hard to respect that where, where that line is crossed and, and, and critical thought is set aside for the sake of that so-called happiness, that relief. 
Um, does that make sense? Do you, do you struggle with that at all? It does. Yeah. I think um, I actually just had this conversation yesterday with my mom that my, my dark underbelly is judgment. And mm. it's because, you know, it served me very well professionally for quite some time in the role of being a wedding and event planner and floral designer. I needed to be judgmental of every little thing and be very yeah. critical. Mm-hmm. When that translates to human beings, it is not a good thing. Uh, and yet at the same time, in order to really observe, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to awareness. I have a deeper sense of awareness because of the work that I've done for me personally. And I don't mean to compare like me and another person. I'm comparing the me of now to the me of the past. So I try to remember that concept, the idea of, you know, what, 10, 15, 20 years that could have been me, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that could have been me that's having the same conversation with this kind of almost venom that comes across as dogma. Uh, You know, so trying to recognize that, that there is a lot of grace there because, and how ironic, <laughs> the idea of, again, as I say the word grace, I'm thinking of scripture verses that come back to the concept of, I need to give grace because I've received it. Mm. Uh, you know, that same type of idea, but that does translate into all of us on our individual journeys and whether we get to share the journey together for a short bit, or if we are just simply on two completely separate paths or at completely different locations that we don't even have a way to connect. So it's a very interesting thing, I think, when we get you know the human experience wrapped up in all of this. It, it's true, but I, maybe this is kind of a, a good closing point to it. You're, you mentioned grace, and I think it's really important. I, I do, again, because of my childhood and that kind of black and white approach to life that, that is so wrapped up in at least the Baptist version of Christianity that I grew up in, um, I, I do also find it, and coupled with kind of a perfectionist style of, of parenting that I also received as a child, um, I do, it, it is easy for me to judge and it has benefited me. It, it's funny. I mean, it, we, we really can relate on so many points, but it, it has benefited me professionally and personally for that matter as well. Um, it enables me to have a certain level of discipline in my life and hold myself to a certain standard, which enables and, and encourages growth. Uh, and it, it does help in business as well to kind of push the envelope and continue to improve. But I do struggle with a, a, a kind of judgmental attitude at times. And I'm not, I'm still not hundred percent sure where the line is between just again, honest, intelligent awareness and, um, and then how that translates to a way that I communicate with people, especially around these, these spiritual ideas. But grace is, is, um, I also think of the word humility again, maintain a certain level of humility, which is at the very root level I am a human being. You're a human being. Mm-hmm. We're doing this thing called life together on this. Uh, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast quite a bit. And one of the things he talks about um, is, you know, we're, we're on this tiny little sphere going, you know, spinning through the universe, this infinite universe. I mean, it, it's, it's nuts when you actually take the time to consider where we're at. And, and it's really interesting. And again, there can be fascinating conversations around how did we even get here in the first place? And, but, at the end of the day, we're just fellow human beings and we're just trying to figure this life thing out. Mm-hmm. And if that humility coupled with a love and kindness and care for other people is what is number one, that's the priority. It gives room for these conversations, these curious conversations, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and I say this because I'm, I'm thinking about 
some really, really close friends of mine, some of my closest friends, kind of my, my go-tos, if you will, who are very much, who are Christians, um, who are very um, staunch Christians at that, but who have prioritized the human connection with me, friendship with me, mm. um, in such a way that I, I set aside the differences in belief system. It doesn't get in the way of us having a human, a beautiful, loving human relationship. Right. Um, we're able to prioritize that. That's number one. And then this belief system or these differing belief systems, there's room for conversation. There's room for respectful conversation, not judgmental conversation about those things. But that doesn't get in the way of the, the root level existence as a human being who happens to care about the other person. And I, it's, it's a beautiful dichotomy. I would not have guessed that I would, be, I would have developed such a close relationship with, with people that come from my old world, if you will. Uh, but because there is grace, because there is humility, because there is love, it enables that kind of relationship. And, and I think that we should all strive for that. Don't let dogma get in the way. Right. Don't let ego get in the way. And, and that's a reminder for me too. focus on, on the grace, the humility, the love, let that take precedence. And, and then the rest of it can kind of fall into place and, and get, there's, there's so much room for, for conversation, curious conversation like this, where we're trying to figure this out all together. Uh, just don't let ego get in the way of that. that that's right. my, that's my Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, <laughs> and I think, and that's the idea, right? That it's a continuous journey, and in that, we don't have to stay stagnant or stationary or hold on to any one thing too tightly because we get to experience this journey together and be able to have that room to be able to, you know, expand and contract as needed as we go through this journey. So yeah, that that absolutely resonates, and I love that. Uh, well, Nathan, as always, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so grateful to have you with us on Recovering Church Girls. So thank you for joining us. Oh, this has been fun. I, I'm, I'm stoked for your project, and I'm curious to listen in. Well, we're looking forward to that. And as always, if this resonates with you as you're listening and you have someone in your circle that you feel like they would really get something out of this as well, just ask that you share this episode and everything that we're doing over here at Recovering Church Girls and join the journey with us. Nathan, thanks again so much. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Bye-bye.